pray right quick. Father God, I just pray that you would take away all distractions from our minds, from our hearts, from our spirits, Lord God. I pray that you would, um, Lord, just help us to concentrate and to focus on your word. Lord, I pray that each one of us would be blessed by your word. I pray, pray that we would um, bless each other, Lord God, and we just ask for your Holy Spirit to teach us. Lord, we're nothing without your spirit. We, we have no wisdom, no, uh, no intelligence on our own, Lord God. It's you that's our teacher, Lord God. And so we just ask that you would not only teach us how to overcome temptations, Lord God, but Father, I pray that by your spirit you would fill us, Lord God, that when the trial comes, and we know that the trial will come, that when they come, Father God, that we will be able to stand, Lord God. And Lord, I pray that you would just, Father God, that we would not subject ourselves to temptation, Lord God, that we would not bow to temptation, Lord God, that we would have no other idols in our hearts, but Lord God, that we would worship you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. James chapter 1, kind of the verse we've been looking at um, in verse uh, 13, says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. And uh, I just kind of wanted to reiterate something that we were talking about the last time in that, uh, you know, it's like this this whole thought, you know, and that's what the world says, is that um, they're like, well, well, where did evil come from? And and that's what philosophers are always talking about. Where What is the source of evil? And essentially what they're saying is when they say that, they're saying basically that God created evil or that God is the author of evil or that somehow evil comes from God. Well, if God is, is sovereign, if God is Lord over all, if he created everything, then he obviously created evil as well. Mm-hmm. And the fact of the matter is, is that evil is not a thing, right? Mm-hmm. Evil is not a thing, just like, it's like, you know, it is a result of things. And basically, it is a result of the actions that we choose, Okay. So, uh, again, evil is not this impersonal force. It's not this something that's just laying out there to, to attack us or whatever. Sometimes, <clears throat> and I, I think that all of us could talk about times when we've been alone or we've been in a situation where we felt the, the presence of evil or felt the forces of evil or, or whatever. And even in those situations, it's, it's the demonic spirits, right? It's not just this impersonal force and stuff. And so... Again, when we're talking about overcoming temptation, we have to understand and we have to acknowledge and we have to come to grips with the fact that if there is temptation in my heart, and especially if I'm giving myself over to temptation, it's not like this thing where the devil made me do it or something, something out there in the universe made me do it. Something in my nature, something that I was born with made me do it, especially as believers. Because if we're believers, God has made us new creation, right? And he is, whatever we used to be, whatever we used to practice, the things that we used to be absorbed in, those things have been erased by the cross. And so, um, um, keep reading in verse uh, 14. It says, but each one of us is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust, so again, it's not something without us. It's not something that's in the, in the universe somewhere. It's not something that's out of us. It's something within us, right? And for us to properly overcome temptation, for us to properly overcome evil, we have to realize that, that um, 
that, that there's something within me. If I'm being tempted, there's something within me that wants that temptation. And, I, and that's the root of it, right? And it's like whenever you're dealing with weeds, all this rain that we've been having, it's, you know, if you look at people's yards, dandelions and weeds are popping up all over the place. If you've ever had to deal with weeds, you know that you've got to dig them out by the root, right? Especially weeds like dandelions. If you just pull that yellow flower off, you're not doing anything to that weed. It's going to continue to grow and continue to get stronger and continue to populate your yard. And so for us to deal with temptation, we have to go to the root of the issue. And the root of the issue is there is something in me that wants this sin more than it wants God. And I have to deal with that. And you know what? It's okay for us to come. I, I cannot tell you how many times when I've been dealing with a temptation, I've come to God and I'm like, God, here's this thing in my heart. It's there. I, I'm, I'm confessing it. I'm, I'm, I'm acknowledging it to you. I'm not trying to hide it from you. And I, and I love this sin more than I love you. And I ask God, God, take my love for this sin out of my heart. Because that's the thing. That's the root of the issue. And when we allow God by His Spirit to begin to deal with the roots, that's when the things get taken out of our lives, right? So, um, let's see. Um, turn to Romans verse 1. So again, in verse 14, it says, Each one of us is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. In Romans uh, 1 verse 18 And the problem with us is a lot of times, and especially a lot of us in Christian circles, we learn how to, how to have the Christian face, right? We learn how to smile and pretend everything's okay. You know, like you meet other brothers and sisters and it's like, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. You know, and a lot of times, I think we've all been there where we've, we're dealing with some massive temptation. We're dealing with some things that we're really struggling with. And you're like, oh, no, I'm doing good, man. God bless, you know, and, and God's just doing great things in my life, right? And there's this fear in our lives to be real with each other. And it, as long as we're concealing things, as long as we're covering dirt over our sins, it's going to stay there. And the nature of sin is, and the nature of Satan is, that anything that's in the dark will grow bigger and will grow more powerful. And so if, it's, it, again, it's like if you do not, if you see one, like fire ants, they're the worst. We have fire ants every year and stuff. And, and you know, I go out and I deal with them and they start out as these little mounds, right? And so you go out and you try to put a little poison on them and stuff and you think you've, you think you've dealt with them. You think you've killed them. You go out a week later and now you've got this huge mound of fire ants. And not only do you have one mound, but you have five other ones down, you know, that are, you know, in your yard. And that's the nature of Satan. The Bible talks about how God reveals himself through nature. And these things all reveal how, how the spiritual things are. If we don't deal with them, they will multiply. They will get stronger. Just like what Jesus said, when you, when you clean out your house, when you cast a demon out, if you don't fill that house with something else, it, that demon's going to go out and get seven more and bring them back. And it says those demons will be more powerful than it was and stuff. And so this thing with sin is, is something that the church today, we take so lightly. We're, we're like, oh, you know, don't worry about it. God's going to forgive you. All you got to do is ask for forgiveness. God will forgive you and things. 
And you know what? That's not how God wants it. God wants us to be overcomers because if we can't overcome in our own personal lives, how are we as a body, how are we as the church, as the army of God going to overcome in the world? Mm -hmm. And we're not. Mm -hmm. The church is being overcome by the world. The church is being overcome by the powers of darkness because we're just, we're just allowing sin and we're just making, oh, it's no big deal. Just all you got to do is just ask for forgiveness. And what we do is we ask for forgiveness, we fall again. We ask for forgiveness, we fall again. We ask, and that's okay to a certain degree. But at some point, God wants us to begin to overcome sin rather than to be overcome by sin. Amen. And in Romans 1 verse 18, it says, um, for the wrath of God uh, had... The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And again, we live in a day and age where the church is like, you know, sin is just, you know, these mistakes, it's these habits, it's this thing. And it's like, you know, but the Jesus that we serve is not the God of the Old Testament who is angry against sin. The Jesus that we serve, he's like, you know, he just kind of, he doesn't see my sin. He just sees the blood, right? That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and, and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God has made it evident to them. In other words, God has revealed to mankind sin, right? Even if you go to, to a, a tribe in, in, in Borneo somewhere, you go to a tribe in... Uh, wherever that's never heard about God, they still have morals. They still have rules about what's right and what's wrong. Now, they're still not living for God, but God has put in the hearts of mankind, uh, to some degree, a knowledge of Him, to some degree, a knowledge of what's right and what's wrong. Okay? And in verse... Um, Verse 19, it says, Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God has made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood that through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. You see that? So it says, and again, we in the church, we have so watered down the gospel and we have so watered down the cross and the price that jesus paid for sin and you know and it's like even when 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 people fall when people f uh, get into sin it's like you know we're not to judge them right don't judge lest you be judged and so this whole thing has become this watered down wishy-washy thing and why would an unbeliever want to be a part of that because they don't see any change in us turn to, turn to another place in Hebrews chapter 10 so it says that that people are without excuse and again we look at unbelievers and we're like and we look at their lives and of course their lives are tragic we look at the things that have happened to them they you know maybe they've been molested or you know, they, their father or their mother was an alcoholic, and they've been through really tough times and stuff. And so we look at unbelievers, and we're, we feel so sorry for them. But the Bible says they are without excuse. And God has put it in the hearts of mankind that they know something's wrong, right? And all of us, like even before I got saved, I knew I, I carried around this burden of guilt, and we carry around this guilt and we're all searching for answers. And again, we got the world saying, you know, um, 
Well, it's because there, the, there was this evil in the world, and, and you're just a part of it. And our world is evil, and our world is fallen. And that comes straight from Gnosticism. Right? That was the Gnostic view of the world, is that the world itself is evil, and everything in it is evil and stuff. Uh, in verse uh, Romans 10, verse 26. Now, you can decide for yourself whether this is speaking to unbelievers, whether it's speaking to Christians. I'm just going to read what it says. In verse 26, it says, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and is regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, I will repay and again the Lord will judge his people. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so, basically what I'm trying to do is get us to return back to the biblical view of how God looks at sin, right? And it's not this, I'm not trying to condemn anybody or, or to put judgment or anybody, and we all have issues that we deal with, and we all stumble and fall just like the Bible says. But the thing about the Christian is the Christian stumbles less and less and less, yeah. right? And the, pro and the thing is, is because you and I are lights in this darkness, right? We are, the, just like it's been said before, we are the only gospels that some people will ever see. And so by our lives, by our testimonies, people should be able to look at us at some point. And I know when I first got saved, I was a mess, right? And and when you know when when we're when we're first, when we're new Christians, we have a little light, right? But as we grow and as we mature and as we've been Christians for a while, our light should get bigger and bigger and bigger, to the point where people see in us something that's different, and they say, "Man." There's something supernatural about this guy. Like if the people that I used to go to high school with, if those guys saw me now, mm. I mean, they would go, there's got to be a God. Because this guy was messed up, right? Yeah. And, and, and so, and that's the transforming power. And, and the thing is, is again, I think what the problem is, is we live in an era where in the church, we're all about uh, excusing sin rather than coming to a God who can transform us to where we don't have to live in that anymore, right? And so, again, from God's standpoint, and, for, and it terrifies me, man. I think about something, I've, I've been reading a book, it's called Voices from the Edge of Eternity, and it's awesome. It's about um, these people's, their, their deathbed experiences. Some of them, you know, good, and some of them bad and stuff. And it's just awesome. And I've just been thinking about a lot lately, what's, what is it going to be like when I stand before God, Right? Because really, that's what we're living for. We get so caught up in, you know, raising our kids and, and taking care of business and going to our work day in and day out and stuff. But it's all coming to a culmination to where we're standing before the Lord. And he's either going to say, well done, good and faithful servant, or depart from me. I never knew you. All right? And the thing is, is, again, why do we sin? It's not because of our nature, especially as Christians. We have a new nature, right? Amen. We sin because we love it, mm -hmm. right? 
I, I'm telling you, man, I, I've been looking at my attitude this whole week and stuff, and I, I, I got to be honest, I hate stupid people. <laughs> you know, and I know that the way that sounds because I'm a stupid person a lot of times, but like the people that I work with, I mean, sometimes I like, it's just crazy. I'm, I'm like, where, what, what planet are you from? And, and God has really been convicting me because of my attitude towards people. And the thing is, is, is I can take that for granted. I can say, you know what, it's not, you know, it's their fault because they're dumb. You know what? Or it's, you know, it's not my fault. You know, I got to work with these people and stuff. And it's like, God's like going, no, it's your fault. And you got issues that you need to deal with. And you can't make excuses for it. You can't blame it on that. Because that's what Adam and Eve did, right? Well, um, you know, the woman that you gave me, it's all her fault. She made me do it. And the woman's like, well, the, the snake that you sent in the garden, it's all his fault. It's not anybody's fault, but my fault. And, when, and, and that's the realization that we have to come to is that, you know what? I love that sin. I love to talk about people behind their backs. I like to look down on people and think that somehow I'm more superior than they are right? Or I love to lust, or I love to hate, or I love to, you know, whatever and stuff. There's, there's, and again, just like we were talking about before, you know, when we first get saved, God's chunking off the major stuff like the, you know, the, the drugs and the, you know, the sex and stuff like that. But as we begin to mature in him, that doesn't mean that God stops doing his work. That whole statement about God loves you just as you are, again, that keeps people in bondage. God does love you as you are. He loves you more than anybody could possibly love you. Now he says, get up and start acting like an adult. Start, be, stop being childish. And you see it over and over and over in the word of God. That's how scripture looks at sin. That's how scripture looks at the way, the things that we excuse, the things we're, we're like, ah, it's no big deal. It is a big deal. I mean, if you think of the price that Jesus paid to set us free from sin, and we're still walking in it, and we're still making excuses for it, and we're still saying it's no big deal. I mean, think about it in the Old Testament. Every single time they sinned, something had to die. And so, in essence, every single time I sin, I'm crucifying Jesus. And, you know, when we begin to look at it in those terms, it makes us not want to sin anymore, right? It makes us not want to give in to temptation. And this is all I'm saying is that's what these scriptures are for. These scriptures are to make us not want to sin. If you were in the Old Testament times and you had to take this baby, cute, little, innocent little lamb and cut its throat, it would make you think twice about sinning, right? And so, again, this is not to be a downer or anything like that, but this is how we've got to look at sin. This is reality. And it's not, this is not legalism. And again, this is so many, this is how Satan has this generation bound. He has this generation bound in that it's no big deal. And it's legalism to think that I have to live an upright life. It's legalism to think that I have to not sin. Don't worry about it. Jesus is just going to forgive you. It's just like in relationships we talked about before. I had a friend that used to always talk about like, um, like things with his wife. Say like if he wanted to buy a guitar or whatever, he'd go out and buy it. And his whole thing was, it's easier for me to get uh, to ask for forgiveness than to ask for permission. And honestly, that's the way a lot of us are with God. We're like, you know what? I'm just going to do it and then I'm going to ask for forgiveness later. 
And sometimes I wonder if God's going to keep forgiving us and keep forgiving us. Because there's a point, I believe, biblically speaking, there's a point where God says, that's it. I'm not going to do that no more. I'm not going to keep forgiving you for things that you know are wrong. And I think that that's what Hebrews 10, 26 is all about. Is it, and again, it's not talking about people that are stumbling. It's not people that are attempting to live right and, you know, are stumbling into temptations. Or, yeah, it's willful. And, and, I, and I know personally in my heart, there's been times when I've known that what I was doing was wrong. And I've known that God's saying, don't do that. And it's like, just, you know, it's just like with a little kid. You know, he's, he's looking at the cookie jar and, you know, he's reaching for it. And you're like, don't do that. And he's like, you know, and you can see that look in his eye. You know, he's going for that cookie. He doesn't care what, if he gets spanked for it, he doesn't care what he's going to get. He's going to go for that cookie. And again, that's the heart of, of human beings. And that's the thing, that's the thing, but that's the difference between being a child and being mature. And God wants us to bring us to maturity so that we're no longer have to have that cookie. Because think about it, you know, the things that we give into just in a, a, a physical way, like we go for the piece of cake or whatever, you know, a, a, you know, you go for that last dessert or, or, or something, and it's not even that good, yeah. right? You know, and you're like, you know, and it's like, and sin is that way too a lot of times. We, we, we're like, I'm going to do it anyway, and stuff, and you go for it, and it's like it wasn't even that good, right? And, and, it's, and that's the lie. That's the lie that Satan sells us on uh, how good it's going to be and as we begin to mature, as we, as we begin to grow up, we begin to realize that, you know what? It's not that good. Amen. And I'm not going to give in to it Amen. because, you know, I've tasted it before and it's not that good. It's yeah. not worth it. Yeah. Um, turn to Luke chapter 9. And that's the whole thing with Christianity. This whole thing about Christianity, I don't see it in the Bible where it talks about this, this salvation experience and then that's it, right? This salvation experience where we're... And the, again, I, I think that a lot of us are that way. And we, we're, we keep referring to our salvation experience. Well, I got saved in 1984 and, you know, the Lord did... You know, there is that. But you know what? The Bible says we are being saved. Mm-hmm. We are being saved every day, right? Because I still need a Savior. I still need deliverance from things. I still need, you know, and that's the problem. When we come to that point where we don't need Jesus, we are in trouble. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian 100 years. If you come to a point where you don't need Jesus, you got problems. Because that's the pride that comes before a fall. And in Luke chapter 9, verse 18. Then it becomes religious pride. Yeah, which is... Very dangerous. Yeah. Verse 9, 18. Luke 9, verse 18. So now, this is right after Jesus had fed the 5,000 people, okay? So, you know, him and, and his disciples were obviously a part of that, right? So imagine if you were with Jesus and you just fed 5,000 people out of a few fishes and a few loaves. You'd be feeling pretty good about yourself, right? In verse 18, it says, And it happened while Jesus was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he questioned them, saying, Who do people say that I am? And they answered and said, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others the one of the, that one of the prophets of old has risen again. And he said to them, But who do you say I am? And Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. 
And he warned them and instructed them not to tell anyone. Verse 22, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now again, they had just fed thousands of people. They had just done these great religious works, right? I mean, they're feeling pretty good about themselves. I mean, they could have just been celebrating and having a good time and talking about how good they were doing and all this. And on the heels of this, Jesus says, look, if you're going to be my disciple, you got to pick up your cross daily and follow me. And that's, again, the, the thing about sin is that's the way sin is, right? And in this, and there's another gospel that talks about the same situation. This is a place where Jesus says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Peter, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father has. And so, again, Peter's feeling pretty good. And then Jesus starts talking about the cross. And Peter says, you're not going to the cross. We're not going to let you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. So at one part, and that's, again, that's how sin works sometimes, right? You can be following God and God's speaking to you and he's saying, blessed are you, my son. You know, and the Holy Spirit has just revealed to you these awesome things. And in the next statement, he's saying, you need to get behind me, Satan. <laughs> right? And I'm telling you, I have been in prayer before. See, you know, praying to the Lord, you know, and just really on fire and stuff. And all of a sudden, a thought pops in your mind. Mm -hmm. Right? Like and you're like, where did that come from? Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so the whole thing about overcoming temptation, that we must be sober, we must be alert, and we must know what we're dealing with. Satan wants to destroy every single one of us because we bear the nature and the image of Jesus. And if he can't get you one way, he'll get you another way, right? If he can't get you with pride, he'll get you with lust. He'll get you with rebellion. He'll get you. There's so many things. And if we're not sober, and, and again, that's why we must know what the Bible says about sin and not just, because if we take it for granted, we're going to get destroyed, right? Um, turn to Hebrews chapter, chapter 5. In Hebrews chapter 5, this is Paul speaking to, or the writer of Hebrews, I think it was Paul. Verse 12, he says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. Now, according to a lot of sources, Timothy was like a convert for like six months. A lot of those guys in the early church had been Christians for only a matter of months, maybe a couple years or whatever, before they're, you know, Paul's telling them to be a pastor or whatever. And, you know, and the thing is, is Paul is saying, you know, by this time, you guys should be teachers. And there's a lot of us within the church that, again, by the, the amount of time that we've been believers, years, people years. should be able to look at our lives and see a difference. And there are so many people that go to church week after week after week and they sit on the pew and, and they've been saved for 10 years, 20 years, however many years, and nobody even knows they're a Christian. 
and they and their business dealings and the way they treat other people and the way they treat members of their family and the way they treat co-workers you know it's like where is the spirit of god when these people and again so so the scripture is so saying that you know there needs to be a testimony in our lives our lives should preach our lives should tell, you know, the story about Jesus and should be able to show people. So, um, you know, and, and the thing is, is Paul in, uh, what is it, 1 Corinthians 11, he said, imitate me as I follow Christ. You know, I mean, how many of us could actually tell people, imitate me, be like me, right? A lot of people, I'm like, uh, you can be like me in certain areas, but in other areas, you know, maybe not right? But again, true maturity is, you know, we look at Paul and we look at the things that he was and there is no reason why anyone of us in this room couldn't be like that. You know what I'm saying? Because we have the same Holy Spirit, right? What did Paul have that we don't have? What did any New Testament person have that we don't have? We have the same God that they had. We have the same Holy Spirit that they have. We can, we have the potential, and I think that the Lord is sitting there sometimes just, you know, the Bible talks about in Hebrews 12, the cloud of witnesses that surrounds us, and I think that so many times they're, they're wanting us to do so much more, and, and we look at the world around us, and we're like, well, why is the world in the state that it is? It's in the state that it is because the church is in the state that it is. Because we are not being a lighthouse. We are not being the example of Christ to the world. And so, and, and again, what we're trying to do in the church is we're trying to, to bring, water everything down to the least common denominator to where, you know, we, we have people come to our Super Bowl parties. We come, have people come into our churches and we entertain them and we, we play rock music and we turn on the, the smoke machines and stuff. And, and we're trying to be like them. You know, everything about Christianity is about being different. And that's why Jesus said, if you're going to be like me, you got to take your cross daily and be different. I don't like being different. I don't like standing out. I don't like for people to look at me and think that I'm weird. But you know what? That's part of the cross. That is the cross. That's the part where we die on and we die to ourselves. This, you know, the, the, the root of all temptation, the root of all sin is what? It's selfishness right? It's me, me, how I appear to people, how I look. I don't want to, I don't want to say, you know, I don't want to witness to somebody because I don't want to look like this, this Jesus freak, or I don't, you know what I'm saying? And stuff, or I don't want to, you know, I don't want to not gossip because I don't want them to talk bad about me and stuff like that, mm -hmm. right? And so this is the whole thing about maturity. As we come to maturity, we're coming to that deeper and deeper and deeper levels of, of um, selfishness, and that's the thing that God is so, rooting out of our hearts. So God taking that selfishness out of our hearts as we grow in maturity. Right. So, and this brings us to shame. Now, like all psychologists and stuff, like you, you go to any psychologist, the first thing that they're going to deal with is the shame, right? Um, most churches that you go to say, well, God is not about shame and, and there shouldn't be this shame. There shouldn't be. You know what? Shame is nothing. Shame is, no, shame is neither negative or positive. What shame is, is how you deal with it, right? Mm -hmm. Let's look at some scriptures. Um, in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 1. 
the biggest thing that, that caused me to come to the Lord was that I was ashamed of myself. I was, and the thing is, is you know, think about in, that in relationship to your kids. If your kids do something really horrible, if they treat you bad, if they call you a name, if they, if if you ask them to do something and they're like, no, I'm not going to do it, and and they're not ashamed, you as a parent are worried about that child. You're like, what is wrong? It, you know, we see. In the world around us, people, the, the actions that you see on the news, the people that go out and shoot people and, you know, they shoot up schools or the people that go out and rape um, people and, and no the people that do these horrible crimes and you watch them and there's no shame at all. Yeah, and you're like, what happened to this person that there is no shame, mm -hmm. right? And so shame can be a good thing and shame is meant to be a good thing if we, if we allow it to be. And in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 1, this is Paul speaking. He says, Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law with the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? And again, Paul's speaking to the Corinthian church. They, they were fighting with each other, you know, backbiting, taking each other to court. Verse 3, do you not know that we will judge angels how much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who have no account in the church? Look at this in verse 5. He says, I say this to your shame. You see that? And again, this is the apostle Paul. And again, we are brought up in a church culture where we don't want people to be ashamed. We don't want to hurt people's feelings. We don't want to tell them, hey, what you're doing is wrong. And you need to stop doing that, right? We want to tiptoe around people's feelings. We want to say only good things. Again, we, we used to go to this one church that was real big into the prophetic. And their whole thing was you never say something negative. Anytime you prophesy over somebody, you say good things. You look at the Old Testament... Everybody that did that were false prophets, <laughs> you know, and, and we're afraid of hurting people's feelings. And again, I, I'm not saying that we should be mean or cruel or hurt people's feelings on purpose. Obviously not. But the thing is, is, is again, we have a lot of our churches are cesspools where there's just all kinds of rampant sin going on and nobody says anything about it. Nobody does anything about it. It just, they just let it go. Karen and I were just talking about this today. Oh, yeah? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, can I say Yeah, something? go ahead. Okay, so when I be at work, yeah, I know this. My coworkers be saying stuff, and I be wanting to say, I said something one time. You know, I told you I was talking about talking to my boss about it, but it's just constant mess, and I just want to say something. But I, I'm like, I'm a Christian. I want them to see me as... You know, the light, and I just want to be nice, and I want to be kind, and, you know, so... Well, there, is a, there is a difference, because if you're dealing with worldly people, you do yeah. need to be those things to them, because they don't know Jesus, so you can't yes. hold them accountable to what you know. Okay. But if you are walking with a believer, mm -hmm. like, we're yeah. the judgments in the church. Okay, mm -hmm. yeah. okay. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, if they're going around talking like they're Christians all the time, and then they're still... Doing stuff, then you have a right to right. correct them. Okay, but if they yeah. just in the world, just, just don't, in the world, sinners are going to sin. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. what sinners do. And, they, and they don't have any accountability. They don't yeah. know Jesus. Yeah. yeah, they don't have the Holy Spirit yeah. to right. yeah. guide them and right. help them. Mm -hmm. so, so, I uh, want to say, shut up. <laughs> 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 
Okay, so 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33. And again, this is the Apostle Paul speaking. Again, we, we get so many of our ideas in church just from a lot of stuff we make up, to be honest with you, or, or we take partial scriptures or... You know, and the thing is, is we, the Bible does say that we are to correct each other with gentleness, mm -hmm. hoping to restore people. God right. is into restoration, yes. and God doesn't just come over and hit us with a stick, you know, yeah. and God is not an angry father, mm -hmm. right? So even when we do correct people, it's with gentleness, looking to ourselves, lest we too should be led astray. Mm -hmm. So, and again, so it's not in a haughty spirit. It's, it's not in anything for that. It's all in the desire that that person be restored to God. Because yeah. just like we've talked over and over and over, it's sin that separates us from Him, right? Yeah. First Corinthians what? 15, verse 33. It says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Be so, become sober-minded as you are and stop sinning. Look what he says. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. So again, shame, and so again, we like most churches that you go to, they, they, they're like, you know, God, we, stay, we don't shame people, we don't tell people that they're wrong, we don't correct people and stuff because we don't want to embarrass people. You know what? There are multitudes of people that are going to slide into hell because someone was too embarrassed to hurt their feelings. And, and again, even from the pulpits, people, you know, preachers don't teach the truth, won't say what's real, won't say what's right, because they don't want to offend people. And the problem is, well, a lot of times with a lot of churches, it's like you can't offend people because you know that they're going to leave if you do, and they're going to take their tithe money with them. And we're trying to build this building that's filled with people <laughs> so that it can reflect on us and show how, you know, how, how good of a preacher I am or show, you know, how great our church is or, or whatever. And stuff, and so we won't speak the truth because we don't want to offend people. Jesus was not afraid to offend people. Jesus would offend people. I mean, he called the Pharisees snakes. He called them a brood of vipers and stuff. Jesus loved the Pharisees, right? He didn't hate the Pharisees. He loved them, and he wanted them to change. But he was honest with them, and he told them the truth. We live in an age, in an era where people will not speak the truth because they don't want to offend people. I mean, it's all over the news. You can't call a person by a certain gender because you're going to offend them, right? The whole thing is about political correctness, and it's not just in the world. It's also in the church, yeah. and the church is not the place for the world. The church is the place for the Spirit of God. And whatever the Spirit says, that way we're going to speak. You know, this whole thing about the prophetic, you know, the prophetic was, uh, like, characteristically in the Bible, more, than, more often than not, the prophetic is not about speaking about what's going to happen in the future, about, well, the beast is going to come and you're going to have these horns and stuff. Okay, that does happen, but more than often than not, the prophetic is saying, this is what God says. You're in sin, and he wants you to stop. And if you don't stop, he will bring judgment. And America, of all places, need to hear that now. If we do not, we call ourselves a nation under God. We, we, we say that we're a nation that was founded in righteousness. And yet, like these, these, these states are coming with abortion bills where even at the point of delivery and conception, they can kill the fetus. 
The baby. <laughs> and yet we say we're a country that's following God. And, the, and, the, and again, and, and preachers and churches are too scared to say the truth because they're scared that they're going to be exposed by the media, media or the LGBTQ community for speaking the truth and saying what's right. And so we're bowing to the wills and to the, uh, of the world and to the media. And if you notice, uh, history is repeating itself. Yeah. Because what we're bowing to is veil. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that guy. Yeah. The, the, uh, you know, like, yeah. Because we don't want to get, we don't want to stir our fires and stuff like that. Yeah, we don't want to be pointed. So. I also look at it as like a polluted spring in a murky well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, 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 I I want to be careful. Turn to Psalm chapter 32. I want to be careful that we're not somehow thinking that we're better or whatever. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it all starts with the church. As the church goes, the world goes. And the problem with the church nowadays is as the world goes, the church is trying to go and stuff. And the thing is, is it does start with the church, but even more than that, it starts with me. It starts with me. Every time I give in to temptation, every time I give in to something that I know is wrong, every time I do that, it, you know, yes. one sin over and over and over, it's, it's been made clear that one sin affects the whole body of Christ. Mm-hmm. When the people in, in, under Joshua's time, when they were going in to take the land and they, they took things that God had forbidden them to take, took, take mm-hmm. the whole nation was punished because of it. And, and that's the thing, until we, every single one of us as individuals, as, as believers, come to that realization, and, and, and when we're being tempted, we, 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 we need to realize that if I do this sin, it's not like, you know, this whole thing that, you know, I'm going to do this little sin, nobody's going to know about it, it's not going to hurt nobody, just, just me. No, it affects the entire body of Christ. And when it affects the entire body of Christ, then it affects the world. And again, we're wondering, well, why is the world not being saved? Why, is, why are people leaving the church in droves? Why are, why are you know, more people being lost than saved? It's because it starts with me. Mm-hmm. It has to start with me. I have to take ownership. I can't lie to myself. I can't hide it. I can't make excuses for it. I can't bury my head in the sand. And Like even you read Jeremiah and stuff and he's like, you know, just the things that Jeremiah was saying to the Lord about how I'm a sinner, you know, and stuff. And, you know, and, and, and that's the thing with the prophetic word, God deals with the prophet. And if we're going to speak a prophetic word, God is going to come to us and say, look, it starts with you. Yep. And that's in God. And that's to his desire. I promise you that is his desire is to raise up a church filled with people that are, that are living that way. They're, they're saying, it starts with me. I am going to take ownership. And I, I, it, I promise you, if that were to happen, if a generation were to do that, it would transform the world. Well, these Bible studies recorded because some people need to hear this. <laughs> <laughs> For real. Yes, yes, they are. Man. Man, I love it. In Psalm 32. Which one? Yes, ma'am. And again, anything that's left in darkness will grow. Mold. You know? 
Um, Psalm 32, verse 1. This was my state before I got saved, before I got saved. And God, man, I saw God do some awesome things. Sometimes before I got saved, and I know you're going to think this is crazy, but there were times when I would pray to God and he would answer my prayers. But I, but I still wasn't going to live the way he wanted me to do. And I was carrying this crushing weight of guilt and I couldn't escape it no matter how much I drank, no matter how much I smoked, no matter what I did. I couldn't get away from it until I finally got serious and said, God, I will do whatever it takes. I will, I will get rid of all my sins. I will, I will drop everything and I will come to you if you will just forgive me. And at that moment, the weight was lifted. I knew I had a clean slate. I knew everything was washed away. I knew that I got, I had another chance. I feel like there is a shame that isn't from the Lord. There is. And it, and it, it causes and condemnation yeah. that and God is not putting on us. Right. Yeah. And I feel like I'm looking for the verse that says, like, um, you're actually covering that later in your message. Okay. Cool. Yeah. I'll be well, and, and that's the thing. Uh, you know, well, let's read uh, Psalm 32. It says, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Look at this. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with, a, with the fever heat of summer. Look at this in verse 5. But then I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. So it's exactly right. And, and that's what Satan is the accuser of the brethren, right? And and. I have known so many people and I've been those ones. I mean, we all, all have been in those situations. We've known people. There have been times when we sinned, we knew we sinned and we were like guilty. We know we're guilty and we come to the Lord and we like, God, forgive me. I'm sorry. I, I, I was wrong. And you feel that forgiveness, right? And then there's been other times when just like Eve, when Adam and Eve, we hide, right? What did Adam and Eve do? I mean, think about it. Here, here, here they have communion with God every single day. They're walking with God in the garden, in the garden of Eden. God, God loves them. They love God. They have this communion and this fellowship, and then they sin. First thing they do, they, they cover up their nakedness, right? And then God's walking, and he's like, Adam, where are you? Like, where are you going to hide from God? How do you think that, you, you know, it's like I, I remember when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, my dad had like several vehicles and one day we wanted to take one of the cars for a joyride. And so we, we take his car and we, we go driving around and stuff. Anyway, we coming back, we come around this last corner to our house and there my dad is standing right in the yard. And we stop the car. Everybody in the car just ducks down in the car. We're in the middle of the street. My dad's standing there looking at us and we're all ducking down in the car like he's not going to see us. <laughs> Right? 
But that's where we are, right? We're, I'm just going to hide from God. I mean, we know people, I'm sure everybody in this room know people right now that are living in sin and they're hiding from God. And God's saying, come back to me. Come yes, back to me. Yes, I yes, will yes, forgive yes. you. Yes. I will wash you. I will cleanse you. Amen. And they're like, no, I'm going to hide. And it's that thing that drives us away from God. And Satan is saying, God's not going to forgive you. God's not going to, look at what you did. And Satan kicks you when you're down. He is the accuser of the brethren. And that is the shame that drives you away from God. So again, the point is, is shame is neither good nor bad. It's what you do with it. Are you going to let that shame drive you away from God? Or are you going to let it drive you to God? There's nowhere else to go. And that's, again, you look at nature. What do wolves do? They, they, they surround the herd until they can find the weak one. What they do with that weak one is they separate that one. And when they set, when I mean, it's amazing. Watch National Geographic documentaries. They're, they're masters at it. They, they, got, they got different jobs for different wolves. One will be the leader that chases them. One will be the backup guy and stuff. And, you know, they, they instinctually know their jobs. That's what the powers of darkness do. And they will separate you. If they can separate you, they will destroy you. Mm -hmm. Because you can't get away from them then. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what the powers of darkness do. Right? Mm -hmm. And in, in the same manner, they try to, the enemy tries to separate you from the herd, the body of Christ, which you need exactly. when you're weak. And um, you need brothers and sisters. Right. And again, that's, that's my point. And, and so this whole teaching that shame is always bad, shame is terrible, and, stay, and, and we connote it to the um, uh, condemnation and stuff like that. It's only bad if you don't allow it to put you, draw you back to Jesus. Right? Mm. Because shame can be a good thing. If I know I'm a sinner, if I know I screwed up, if I, if I should be ashamed about that. Yeah. And I need to be ashamed. Yeah. And I need, but then I need to know the source. And the only source is Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. The only one that can forgive me of that sin is Him. Yeah. It's, it's, it's madness. It is madness that Satan, and, and it's fear. Right? Turn to uh, First John. What was it? I think sometimes we need to know like we're forgiven from God Himself. Like, I feel like there's so much of, if anyone's like confessing a sin or something, or like dealing with sin in their life, like I hear so many Christians go, well, you know, you're forgiven, you know, just move on and you're forgiven, yeah. no shame. And it's like, I'm like, no, they need to like know how God's heart was hurting and broken over yeah. that. They need to grieve with the Lord. There's a grieving yes. time. Yeah. 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 There's like yeah. a friendship with the Lord and right. grieving with him over right. and just letting mm -hmm. him yeah. come mm -hmm. and have that relationship right. with us and restoration. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's good. And that's why this whole thing about like just, again, you know, kids do it, you know, oh, I'm sorry. And they keep on, you know, it's like whenever you catch your kid doing something and they're like, I'm sorry, you know, you know, they're not the least bit sorry. Right. And the same thing is, is again, we're like that with God a lot of times. And God's like, well, why are you sorry? It's like, I, I know that even with us sometimes, it's like, you know, like sometimes we're fighting or whatever, and Amy will go like, well, I'm sorry. And I'm like, well, why are you sorry? Right? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, it's like if, if, if you hurt each other's feelings and there's some kind of a wounding there, and it's like a lot of times we don't understand, right? I, I don't understand how I hurt her and stuff. And so for me to truly be forgiven for me to truly be in the place where I can be forgiven. I need to know why she's mad at me. What did I do? What was it? I, okay. 
Because that's what that's how it is, isn't it? Whenever we hurt somebody else, it's like it's no big deal to me. I don't understand why they did. Why did it hurt you so bad? It, but it's like that is a heart that is that is is real, that wants to know what it was that that did the wrong, right? And that's and that's that's how you have relationship. That's how you truly grow stronger together, because you know one fight can totally end a relationship. And it happens every single day. One disagreement that, that never gets resolved. You know? And the thing is, is, is because, no, uh, you know, in those cases, nobody wants to be understood. Or nobody wants to understand. They just want to be understood. Right? It's like, oh, no, I need you to understand me. I need you to understand what you did to me. Right? And again, it's selfishness. It's all wrapped up in me. And so, and so as believers, as when we offend God, we need to come and we need to try to understand why is it that that offends you? What did I do? And stuff. And we, just like with our spouses, with our friends, with our co-workers, when you make something right, it, it's not just like, I'm sorry. Right? It's like, you know what? I did wrong and I, I'm, I promise I'm going to try to do better. I'm going to not try to do that anymore. And it's not in the sense of an alcoholic, again, who just gets drunk and apologizes, oh, I'll never do it again mm-hmm. till the next time, and they're doing it again, right? The scripture where Paul was, y'all got to help me, but he was talking about a godly, a godly sorrow that leads that. to repentance, and he mm-hmm. said, what avenging of wrong, yes. in other yeah. words, help me, y'all. What zeal it produced in you, like it produced in you like a desire to put that sin under our feet, like to be done with it, like just yeah. like, oh, I'm, this thing will not rule my life, you know, mm-hmm. just really like take vengeance with the Lord over that thing yeah. and, and stand with him in, in that place of judgment on that thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't a light sorrow, it wasn't a worldly sorrow, it yeah. was like this mm-hmm. deep thing that caused an, a hatred of yeah. that sin. And Amen. And there was a difference between Saul and, and uh, David, right? Um, like Saul, God, God had told, Samuel told Saul when they were going to defeat the Amalekites, he says, put, destroy everything. Everything that breathes, everything that moves, kill it. Uh-huh. And stuff. And, and, and then Saul didn't do it. And then when Samuel comes to him, he's like, well, the people, you know, made me do it, Right? And so again, he's like, oh, but, and, then, and so Samuel's like, well, the Lord's rejected you. And, and, Sa- and Saul's still like, well, Samuel, just come with me to the feast and stuff. So, you know, so it'll still, still look like the yeah. Lord's with me, you know, <laughs> right? But then when David, and, and that's the thing, we, we, a lot of us use David as an excuse. Well, look what David did with Bathsheba. He's only human, right? Isn't that our excuse? Well, I'm only human. And it's like, well, Jesus was only human. Now, okay, he was fully God and fully man, but the Bible says he laid aside his godhood and while he, he was on he the He also earth. learned obedience. Yeah. And so Jesus didn't have special power to overcome sin. He overcame sin in the same way that you and I do. He chose the Father's will over his own will. And, and again, when, when it comes to David... When David gets caught with Bathsheba, he goes on his face before the Lord. He says, create in me a clean heart. He's not just asking for forgiveness. And again, when we come to the Lord and we ask him for forgiveness, don't just say, God, forgive me of my sins. Ask for God to give you a new heart. 
This thing that's in my heart, Lord, I want you to deal with it. I want you to take it out by the roots. I renounce it. I I confess it. I, 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 you know, cause me to hate it. I can't tell you how many times I've prayed those prayers. And Lord, make me hate this thing because I love it. Right? Be real with the Lord. He knows. I love this thing. I love this sin more than I love you. But I'm asking you to take it from my heart, to take this desire from me, to take this love from me and make me love you more than I love this sin. And God will do it. And, you know, it, it, a lot of times it is a progression. And again, if you're falling, it, but your heart is still to, to overcome, don't be condemned by that, right? And that's condemnation, but but just realize, just get back up, I, get back up. That's the whole thing. Get back up, press on, and say, you know what? There's going to be next time. Next time, I'm going to overcome this. Amen. I'm not going to fall again. Amen. In First John four, verse fourteen, it says, "We have seen and testify." that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the, war, of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. So many of us need to meditate on how much God loves us. Mm-hmm. Now, again, a lot of the church um, focuses on the love of God so that they can get away with sinning, Right? But that if we truly meditate on the true love of God and how much He loves us, it, we need, it, need, it will bring us to a place to where we don't want to sin against Him. Mm-hmm. Right? We don't want to make excuses for it. We don't want to you know, just sin and ask for forgiveness. But we want to be cleaned. We want to be set free. Mm-hmm. But we need to know that love because the Bible says it's the joy of the Lord that's our strength. And it's knowing that, just like we were talking about earlier, it's knowing that He loves me, that He will forgive me, no matter how gross and filthy and disgusting my heart is. Mm -hmm. He is for me. He is not against me. Mm -hmm. He wants me to succeed, not just for me, but for people that are going to come after me. Mm -hmm. There are people in every one of our lives that God wants us to succeed so that we can mentor them. And hopefully the people that come after us are going to be twice as good as we were. You know? Hopefully the people that come after us are going to just blow us away. You know, that should be our goal. Every pastor, every pastor in the world's goal and desire should be to work themselves out of a job. (laughs) It really should. They should be, it should be their desire that these people don't need me anymore. You know, and you see it actually in revival, like in the revival in Wales in 1904, the preachers, they, they wouldn't even preach. They would get up like they were going to go preach and stuff, and, and it's like they would have nothing to say. So they would just worship the Lord. And man, I mean, <laughs> that's, honestly, that's the job of the fivefold ministry, is to bring the church to that point, to where they don't need them. Verse 17 says, by this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, no sense of condemnation, no sense of worthlessness from God. That sense of worthlessness is from the devil. 
Anytime you have a sense of worthlessness, anytime you have a sense that you are just, you know, just filth and need to be cast into hell or whatever, that's from Satan. Because God desires to, to make you into something that you can't even imagine. Um, it says, because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. So again, I think that the more we, we get to know the love that he has for us, the more that we begin to understand that love, um, it, it gives us the strength to overcome temptation, right? And not only does it give us the strength, it gives us the desire. Just like, again, when you're in a, a, a tight friendship, when you're in a close relationship, you don't want to hurt that other person because you love them, right? You want only the best for that person. Um, which brings us to discipline. Turn to 2 Timothy first one, chapter 1. The Christian walk is a walk of discipline. And it's very difficult for us, especially in America, because we don't have to really live lives of discipline. You know, if you go to a third world country, they have to go every day to the well to get water. You know, a lot of countries have to go to the market every single day to get their food. They have to work for the things that they have. We have everything so easy. We have, we got microwaves. We can, we got things at the touch of a finger. We, we, everything is so easy for us. We don't need discipline. The Christian life is the most disciplined life that there could be, right? And, and so if we are going to follow the Lord, it's going to take discipline, and, and, and again, we don't like discipline. We like to live how we want to live. We like to eat when we want to eat. We want to have snacks when we want to have snacks. If we want to watch TV, we'll, have TV, we'll watch TV. If we want to go, you know, whatever we want to do, we do, right? Mm -hmm. When the Lord saves us, when the Holy Spirit comes into our heart, He begins to take us through the path of discipline so that I am no longer doing today what I used to do, right? Used to be, I used to say, used to, when, before we get saved, we have no discipline, right? We're just carried along. We're like dogs. We just do whatever we want to do when we want to do it and stuff. When we get saved, the Lord begins to discipline us, and he takes us in the school of discipline. And again, a lot of churches, a lot of ministers teach against the discipline of the Lord because that's just legalism. No, that's the Lord taking you and shaping you. You can't have a diamond without fire, right? Without pressure, you know, how do you make wine? You crush the grapes, right? If the Lord is going to take our lives as wine to this world and as something supernatural, he's going to, he's going to crush us. He's going to take us on the path of discipline. In 2 Timothy 1 verse 6, it says, For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands, Look at this. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity or fear, but of power and of love and discipline. What does your version say? Can y'all say something different? Yeah, mine says, For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and self-discipline. Yeah. Self-control. Self-control, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, again, a, a lot of even believers say, Well, I just can't help myself. So if you have the Holy Spirit in you, he says God has given us a spirit. Who is that spirit? It's the Holy Spirit, right? Mm -hmm. 
is a spirit of power and of love and discipline. Turn to another place in 1 Timothy chapter 4. So again, if, if we call ourselves Christians and we're leading unruly lives, if we're not disciplined, we are not allowing the Holy Spirit to have His way in us. Right? You can talk all day long about being Spirit-filled and Spirit-led, but if you're not leading a disciplined life, the Holy Spirit is not doing that work within you, right? Because He starts that work inwardly and it works outwardly. So does this apply to all areas of our life? Yeah, uh, and, and again, like in my case personally, like I'm seeing areas in which I'm not disciplined, right? And used to be like I, I had no focus, I didn't care about these things because these are tiny little things in comparison to what I used to deal with and stuff. And now, and that's the thing, again, the, Lord, the Lord's not going to stop working on us. If we're Christians for a thousand years, He's not going to stop working on us because He's always going to be pointing at those things that we need to deal with, right? He's always going to be bringing us on that path of discipline. Yeah. And so if, if we're going to... Oh, and the thing is, is, again, soldiers don't learn to fight Whenever you're going into war, say like if you're in World War II and, and, you know, they don't just take you off the streets, put you in a tank and say, go fight. They train you, right? And the Bible says in Psalm 144, the Lord trains my hands for war and stuff. And, and when I was in the military, you're always training, always training. <laughs> Because you are being prepared for the eventuality. And I was in for the military for four years. I never fought one time. But they're training you for in the eventuality that you have to fight, then you'll be ready. Yeah. Same thing with us. If we're not fighting against these little things in our lives, if we're not overcoming these things that we think are minor, that they, we think are no big deal, the Bible says if you're faithful in much, much you'll be faithful in little. If you're faithful in little, you'll be faithful in much. Exactly. And so if we're not dealing with these little things, we're not going to be able to stand when the big things come. The Bible talks about David when he faced Goliath. When David is staring Goliath in the face, he says, you know what? And Goliath basically mocking him and laughing at him and saying, who are you? David said, you know what? First I dealt with the lion and I dealt with the bear. Now I'm going to deal with you. And that's the progression that the Lord takes us on. He has us deal with these things that may not seem like big things to us, but they're definitely things that God is dealing with us so that God wants us to deal with the Goliaths. There are Goliaths for each one of us. But it's not going to happen until we deal with the smaller things. And in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. It says, but the, but the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own consciences as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, and it, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God in prayer. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. Look at this in verse 7. But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, 
Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Now again, these things can happen in, in small ways, like um, trying to think of examples. Can't really come up with a lot of good examples, but even some things that, that like, again, that's what fasting is for, right? We have every right to eat. God has given us food. He's given us the ability to make money. He's, he's given us a grocery, you know, supermarket and stuff like that. We can go out and get food anytime we want to, right? Fasting is making a conscious choice that, you know what, I'm not going to do that, right? And then it's all these little areas where we discipline our lives. When we, when we choose to pray whenever we don't want to, when we choose to worship God, whenever we choose to study our Bibles, whenever there's something on television that we want to watch or whenever we want to be with friends or things like that, all these things are strengthening our inner man so that when we stand in the day of battle, we're, we're warriors, 